Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are exploring a very interesting topic in Americana and recorded history, and that is the V-Disc. This is something that they would send to soldiers in World War II so that they could experience music, and it's a super interesting topic that we're really excited to talk about today on the Music History Project. So stick around for some talk about the V-Disc. Hello, and welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to learn more about the program or view any interviews that aren't featured, visit namm.org library. And welcome back to another fantastic episode uh, covering the V-Discs of the World War II era. And um, it's a really exciting topic. I have to say, I didn't really know about this before I started hearing more about it. And Dan was talking about it all the time. And it's (laughs) such a fascinating topic. Uh, And it's just a really cool little snapshot in both American history as well as music history. So it's kind of a perfect thing for us here. Uh, So today we're going to hear from a couple different people about this. Uh, We're going to hear from uh, music historian and author Dennis Sprague, uh, author and journalist Lou Shaw, and then we're going to get a little bit of of a perspective about the whole V-Disc and and what that really meant from uh, drummer Spex Powell, as well as music retailer Rabina Miller. So it's a Definitely a fun uh, story to hear and to kind of have a couple different perspectives of um, the effects that they had on on people during that time and after as well. (laughs) I love your enthusiasm. I agree (laughs) with you. It's a short but important little part of our history, and Mm -hmm. it's very compelling and interesting, uh, especially if you consider that World War II was really the first big war in which there were uh, opportunities to utilize recorded music or anything recorded. Um, And the military in the United States really took it very seriously to provide music, both live and recorded, to their troops wherever they were all around the world, even though it took a big effort to get them these materials and or the bands. They were very, very serious about military bands of all sizes. Uh, uh, We hear about that in many of the interviews of those that uh, lived through that, either as a player or as a soldier who enjoyed the USO shows and the small little camp shows um, that these musicians would come and play. There's great historic stories about Steinway providing uh, upright pianos that were actually parachuted in. Uh, If they miscalculated the weight, they used to call those the Steinway bombs. Um, (laughs) But the military was always very serious about that because they realized the importance of morale. They realized the importance of reminding these soldiers, many of which were in their late teens, early 20s, missing home and being connected to their families, uh, their loved ones back in the States, and really a reminder of what they were fighting for. And I think music in particular uh, was utilized to its fullest as a result. Um, So for those soldiers who couldn't be exposed to live music, uh, the military was looking for ways of creating something that they could send in a recorded form. And uh, so a young captain named Robert Vincent took on the task of creating what we now refer to as the V-Discs, Victory Discs um, is what they're short for. And it ran from 1943 to 1949, a few years after the war, they continue to do it for those troops that were still left behind in various places. Um, And what was most compelling for a guy like me is who stepped forward to say, yes, I want to record something for the troops without payment, without concern about royalties, without any of that stuff. It was all about helping the troops do what they were doing uh, to fight for our country. And as a result, 
the most amazing list of musicians I can think of in any project. I mean, ranging from country and Western guys that most of the country probably up until that point hadn't really heard too much about. If you weren't from the South, you probably didn't know Roy Acuff in 1943, but these V discs had Roy Acuff and Spade Cooley and Tex Williams and Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, all those country guys, along with um, the society bands, the Guy Lombardo, uh, uh, Del Courtney, Frankie Carl, uh, Wayne King, the king of the uh, waltz. Um, and and then, of course, jazz, a real heavy hitters of jazz step forward and the orchestras of um, Duke Ellington, for example, and all of those guys, uh, Coleman Hawkins, uh, unbelievable list of people. Uh, and then, of course, the big bands, which were very, very popular at that time. Um, I can't think of one. In fact, I tried really hard to think of one. Here's my book, by the way. I want to show you my reference book. Uh, <laughs> the first volume of the V-Disc history. This is the discography. Look how thick that is. I looked really hard to think of a big band uh orchestra that was not represented i couldn't come up with one um everybody from tommy dorsey and glenn miller uh to billy Eckstein, uh even the international sweethearts of rhythm which was the first female mostly composed of african-american female musicians uh they performed louis armstrong um i mean my goodness art tatum uh, and, and what's really neat is um Oh, I forgot Bunk Johnson. How could I have forgot <laughs> Bunk? Oh my gosh! And and Jimmy Rushing and uh, and, and the Spike. rest of this and the rest of this will be just Dan listing off every single chat. <laughs> He's reading the book right now. I wait, 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 wait. Ready. And, and Spike Jones, who at the time had a big hit that was a comedy a comedy about Adolf Hitler called Defeer's Face. Um, that was a big seller. Um, but anyway. Um, all of these people stepped forward in a time where it was actually difficult for them. There was a musician strike going on. And as a result, they weren't, they weren't tied to anything they had to do or perform with. And as a result, you had a lot of people performing with uh, folks that never before and since recorded with. I mean, it, that's the part that's really, really neat. Uh, I think Spex Powell uh, once told me that um, his recording with uh, Roy Eldridge was the only time he ever played with Trigger Albert. Um, you know, a small little thing, maybe, but a big thing to him. And when you hear that record, it's called uh, Roy, uh, Roy Meets Horn instead of Boy Meets Horn. It's Roy <laughs> Meets Horn. Fantastic. It's on YouTube. My goodness, the way Specs and, and Trigger play together is is unbelievable. And to know that that's the only time they ever perform together is extra special. Um, so this V-Disc program really was very compelling. Uh, it really did uh, achieve what they were hoping it would achieve because uh, time and time again, I heard from soldiers over the years who said it really brought home um, home and and it brought it into their hearts and it it uh, it uh, helped them along the way doing a very difficult job so um so anyway that's my introduction to uh to, to v-disc we'll talk more about that later but i know that uh we also want to hear from other people that we've interviewed over the years to talk about this really fun and compelling part of americana yes definitely so first up we are going to be hearing from dennis sprague he is the senior consultant for the Glenn Miller Archives and the American Music Research Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, he is really smart, knows all about his <laughs> stuff that he researches, Glenn Miller and um, early music of that era. Um, we got to sit down with him virtually in February, um, and he told us all about the V-Disc program, really gave us some great information. So here is Dennis Sprague. Well, you know, in the, before the United States entered World War II, the, a lot of young Americans were getting drafted in 1940 because of the Selective Service Act in 40 and 41. And there's a Miller angle to this because Miller, like other band leaders, took some interest in the fact that kids that were buying their records were suddenly in uniform. So, that, you know, they started noodling around with ideas about, okay, we've got all these 
18-year-olds that are suddenly in army bases in places like Mississippi and Alabama who are from New Jersey and Chicago and they're bored. You know, how are we going to entertain them? So the army decided that they, they had a recreation branch in the army that was supposedly setting up army bases to have, you know, and air, air bases to have um, some sort of recreational facilities and, and, and stuff that where people could have downtime from their training. And they got the idea, one of the officers in the Pentagon got the idea that they would start a, a music program. And the Special Service Division was split between, at the time, between Washington and New York because they decided that to have a music program, they needed some kind of an officer presence in New York with the record, with the recording companies and the ad agencies and everybody. And they had to get permission. The first thing they did was just basically buy a bunch of records and record players and put them into the, into the rec rooms at the camps. And so guys would have some music and, 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 and during their downtime. And that led to then after Pearl Harbor, they stepped up their efforts. And of course, special services branched out into radio and the special services radio branch eventually became Armed Forces Radio Service in 1943. But one of the officers in that program was a guy named Lieutenant Robert Vincent. And Vincent was in the radio branch and he was in New York and he, he was he was working with several of the Army special service officers in New York that were in charge of the record programs. And they were doing all kinds of kits and programs and they were noodling with sheet music that they would send around and this and that. But it was kind of discombobulated and not working real well. And Vincent got the idea. He said, well, why don't we better organize this and start a program where we have a coordinated effort between the advertising industry because they own the products um, and they, and the, and the um, musicians unions. Remember at the time, once we got right after we got into the war, James C. Petrillo, the head of the musicians union decided to strike the recording industry. As of July 30th, 1942, you couldn't make records. So all of a sudden the recording industry froze at that point until you know, eventually DECA and Capital settled in 43, end of 43, then RCA and Columbia settled in 44. So they had to find a way to get the recording industry to furnish them with a lot of records. That is, can you press us more records? Problem was records in those days were made out of shellac and they were 10 and they broke. They were 10 inch and they broke and they cracked and you couldn't ship a, a lot of them around. And the United States was eventually going to have a lot of troops overseas, not just in the United States. So Vincent got the idea that we need that we needed to have a more sophisticated program. It was not only in terms of providing records and getting artists to record records because there was a strike, but it was also getting the rights to use the records. So he negotiated deals with Petrillo said, yes, I will allow records to go only to the armed forces. And I will allow the musicians in all the bands to make those records. But there, and we have to call them something like U.S. Army Records or War Department Records or Hit Kits. And they eventually came up with the name V-Discs, Victory V-Discs. And so the Musicians Union came on board with it. And the reason they did it was because the musicians were going to do it for free. They weren't going to earn money on V-Disc recording sessions. So what Vincent decided to do, he hired a bunch of producers from RCA and Columbia. All the first, all the guys that worked in the Vetus program as civilians, they were guys that would have been drafted and carrying rifles. And they were very happy to say, oh, I mean, I'm a producer at Columbia RCA, and now I'm going to be a corporal in the Army and a producer at, at Vetus. Okay, you know, that's good. That's kind of like when Glenn Ford was Army Air Force Band and the guys go, you mean if I, if I get drafted in the Army, I can work for you and play music and not have to, like, being combat, this is a good thing. I'll do it. You know? So anyway, the Vetus program got rolling. He hired the producers. They did a mix. They at first they they got permission from RCA and Columbia to go into the vaults and reproduce or recut or redub all the masters of like 1939 and 40 and 41 records that many of the bands and artists had made. Vincent made a decision he would do big bands, he would have big bands and jazz popular music, country music, Latin American music, symphony orchestras, 
They made V-discs of the NBC Symphony broadcast. Uh, RCA and NBC said, fine, you can have our 16-inch transcription discs and you can dub them and you can make them into V-discs. So, so they got all that handled in terms of being able to have a mix of both off-the-shelf records from the companies, which they got complete access to. The radio networks gave them access to the transcription discs so they could lift, like with Bing Crosby V-discs, most of the Bing Crosby V-discs are lifted from the Bing Crosby Craft Music Hall program. They're from the NBC trend, the NBC recordings of the radio shows, and they would take excerpts from the radio shows and make them into V-discs. Um, but technically, they had a problem with the 10-inch shellac records. You couldn't get enough content on them. So one of the technicians in in, in L.A., who and, and there were two or three people involved in this, they created a new product called Vinylite. They created what we now know to have been the, the vinyl disc, you know, the 16-inch, 33 long play vinyl disc, 45 vinyl disc. They moved away from shellac, which, remember, rubber was cut off. We were getting rubber from Brazil, but rubber from the Dutch East Indies was gone as a as the Japanese captured it. So they had to come up. They came up with these. The Canadians came up with something called Formalite, and we had Vinylite, and they basically made vinyl discs. They found they could cut thinner grooves on them. So instead of like a three-minute-to-a-side or three-and-a-half-minute-to-a-side commercial record, they could do seven or eight minutes on a side on a 10 inch they could do a 10 inch disc with smaller grooves and it was flexible so guess what you could make thousands of them and put them in boxes and send them to europe the pacific all over the world and they didn't break so bingo and so suddenly they have they're, they're cranking out records at the same time armed forces radio service used vinyl light but instead of 10-inch or 12-inch 78s, which eventually the V-discs end up being 12-inch 78s, AFRS sent out 16-inch 33s, big for their AFRS radio stations all over the world. So they could fit up to half an hour on each side of the record. This was pretty revolutionary stuff in 1943. So eventually they cranked out 900 and 50 releases more or less and they probably put out i forget how many millions of records it's something like three and a half or four million records were made they went all over the world and many of those original v-disc records survive collectors have them every once in a while you'll find that somebody finds a box somewhere from one of the shipments because every single month they sent out a shipment and the first shipment that went out in the fall of 43 was a then they had next month was B, then C, then D. And eventually they get to like double X, double Z. Then they get up to triple X and triple Z. They kept they kept going on and on and on and on and on for years. And they kept the Vetus going after the war. They didn't stop. They kept going after the war. Now, the main producer, Vincent's lead producer in the Vetus program was a gentleman named Tony Janik. And Tony had been with Marty Pallets at Columbia. Marty was also in the Vetus program. They were at Columbia. And Janet kind of became the lead guy, lead producer. And he would have V-Disc recording sessions at RCA on both the East and West Coast, like Louis Armstrong or a lot of jazz guys would go in and just cut records. You know, Fats Waller did a couple sessions. The Glen Miller Army Air Force Band did a recording, three recording sessions in New York City at RCA for V-Disc. In fact, on the first Vetus program, Janik had to call Washington. I'll tell you this story real quickly. They were going to call it, the military had a rule saying, we don't want to promote, if you're in uniform, we don't want to promote you, the officer, or the guy. So they said, well, these records are going to be labeled 418th Army Air Forces Orchestra from Yale University. And Glenn Miller says, uh, no, it's going to say directed by Captain Glenn Miller. And they go, why? He goes, nobody's going to listen to this record. If, if it has my name on it, they're going to listen to it. If it doesn't have my name on it, they won't know who the hell it is. So Miller, that Janik had to call Washington. Miller said, I'm not going to do the recording session unless you call Washington and clear that my name goes on these records. And, and they did it. Miller got his way. They put Miller's name on it because Washington said, yeah, that's why we have Miller in uniform to promote him. You know? <laughs> Military is unbelievable. So Janik bended to that. But Tony did a lot of stuff, and we have in our archives, we have, um, and I'll tell you how we got that in a little while, 
we have, oh, I don't know, a uh, hundred or so test pressings. And the test pressings were, would be where Tony would go back and either on a, 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 a new session like Miller, they would do a test pressing at, um, of the master to see how it sounded. And he'd write his notes in the label, handwritten notes on the label, whether to approve it, disapprove it. Some test pressings were, were not made. Some pre test pressings were then sent on to be duplicate, mass duplicated. And we have a bunch of them in the archives. And he did a lot of those on both the East and West Coast. And it's a great resource of, of because they're one of a kind. You only have one test pressing with Tony Janik's handwriting on it. So it's kind of interesting. But V-Disc was a big deal. They ended up going all over the world. Like I said, they sent out a shipment every month, and each shipment had 50 records in it. Um, and you know, so that you multiply that out of how many shipments they made and where they all went all over the world. They shipped them to every theater of war. They shipped them to almost every military unit that existed. So you can imagine how many records that is. They were even on Navy ships. So they're everywhere. Those, those records were everywhere. And here's where they're a really valuable historic resource because we do have a lot of radio transcriptions that survive from 1940, later 42, 43, and 44. But because of the recording strike, AFRS transcriptions, network radio transcriptions, and the V-discs are our only evidence of big bands and popular singers in a two-year period. And it's a very prolific two-year period of American history, musical history, 43, 44. It's amazing how much music was cranked out during the war. And everybody thought the big bands were going to die during the war because musicians are being drafted. Um, the recording strike of Petrillo and uh, gasoline and, and travel restrictions in terms of taking trains around the country or buses. Yet most of the really popular band leaders, like there were still civilians like Tommy Dorsey and Harry James, made more money and were more popular during the war than they were ever in any other because the nation was still hungry for entertainment. People wanted to blow off steam, like in like in Southern California, the bands were booked solid at all the ballrooms because you know people wanted to leave the aircraft factories and go dance. Man, I'm loving this podcast already. We've only heard just from Dennis, but I think it, it's really putting the foundation together for why this program was so important for so many troops uh, fighting for our country during World War II. And the uh, the fact that the musicians union strike was going on and that there were virtually no recordings being available for two year period um, really made this program extra special, not only for the troops to hear something fresh and new, but for the musicians who were musicians and performers and really wanted to keep doing that. So they were very happy to lend a hand. And as I said earlier, just about everybody you can think of um, participated. There were some that I didn't mention earlier that I have to say, just because uh, they were really very important to this uh, process. One was the NBC Symphony Orchestra. Um, you know, it wasn't just pop music, but there was a lot of classical music being recorded and uh, presented on V-Discs, but also the blues. Mead Lex Lewis, one of my all-time heroes, uh, also recorded for V-Discs specifically, as did Cab Calloway and Lionel Hampton and Ella Fitzgerald, Les Paul, uh, one of our heroes here in the music industry. Um, and, and remember, there was really kind of two uh, sources for material for the V-Discs. One were those performers, most of which we're naming, who went into a studio to specifically record something for this program. Uh, and oftentimes they would even have a little introduction. Um, and these were the opportunities that we talked about earlier where multiple people could get together that maybe never recorded together. Um, so that was a really wonderful aspect of the V-Disc program. The other source was uh, pre-recorded uh, segments that perhaps uh, took place several years earlier that weren't well known. Uh, remember, live radio was a one-time thing, uh, and some of those programs were recorded. So they utilized some of those performances on V-Discs as well, um, sort of the archives, if you will. And uh, some of those came from what I refer to as radio transcriptions or electronic 
transcriptions. And these are basically looking a lot like records uh, instead of a 12 inch record, which is an LP for which uh, I have a V disc of, <laughs> they would be 16 inches and basically a half an hour so that um, radio uh, stations could play a full pre-recorded program with commercials and everything, uh, musical beds and all of that. They just put on the record needle and it goes all the way across and you're playing it live. Um, but it's not live. It's a, it's a record. Um, but those transcriptions was a very, very important part of this history in my estimation, just because of the technology that was available. Um, and the fact that they now had sources of things that you maybe you didn't hear that one particular program, but now it's on a V disc and you can play it over and over again. Uh, and what's really neat about that is performances of uh, Irving Berlin singing with Bing Crosby, for example, or Duke Ellington and Count Basie together for the first time. Uh, things like that were really, really compelling that you, if you missed it once on the radio, you, you that was it. This was your first chance to actually hear it again and play it again and again and again, which is one of the reasons why so many soldiers took as many of these home as they possibly could, even though that was against the law. I'm jumping ahead, but um, <laughs> that's a compelling uh, argument for why they did what they did. Um, the transcriptions also is a very interesting history because. NBC, this sort of started with Bing Crosby, who, uh, if you don't know that name, was basically um, the most popular artist of the 1930s. Uh, he was, without a doubt, he, he was on radio and television. He had live concerts and, of course, his records sold. Uh, he's probably best known for recording Irving Berlin's White Christmas, which was the biggest selling single song for, I think, 46 years in a row. Um, that's a record. Um, and uh, Bing was the man. He, you know, he really commanded when, when he wanted something, he basically got it. But NBC, uh, his major network on radio, was not a big fan of his concept of having a pre-recorded broadcast. Uh, they love the spontaneity of it. They love the fact that so many um, stars of radio back then, like Jack Benny and, and Crosby, other people, Phil Harris, were masters at fixing a problem. If they did a flub, if they you know made a mistake, they had a great comeback. Uh, Jack Benny was fantastic at that, too. Um, and so that spontaneity was one of the reasons why people were so happy about live radio. They loved to listen to it and wanted to hear. It's kind of like why we watch Saturday Night Live now, right? You kind of <laughs> hope that somebody is going to make a flub and see how they get out of it. And that's exactly what uh, NBC was arguing Bing Crosby about. Uh, but Bing, who had two broadcasts on the same day with the three-hour uh, difference in the time zones, uh, was really worried about his reputation because if his voice cracked, it could ruin him. He, he, that, uh, that was his fear. So he invested in Ampeg's uh, tape uh, company to come up with a solution. In the meanwhile, these transcriptions, which were used in certain settings, uh, was something that he really sunk his teeth into. He invested in companies that made them, and he eventually got uh, the networks to agree with him that he should uh, have this opportunity. All of that being said, what it did was during those uh, critical years of the late 30s to the early 40s when World War II started, those transcriptions amassed major, major content, and most of which are not really available now because most of us don't have a record player that plays 16 inches. You have to have a special arm, and I, I don't have one of those. Um, so in order to hear those, the V-Disc is really our best option now in retrospect. And um, so Bing Crosby gets a lot of credit in my book for making that happen because artists that we have no other recordings of we now have recordings of, and that's thanks to him and the transcriptions. But most importantly, it has to do with that middleman, which was the V-Disc. I'm just thinking like all of this stuff coming in, all of this info we're talking about, just so cool. Like, like sending all of these records to the military people in World War II, you're getting these exclusive records that no one else is getting to listen to. I mean, that is that just must have been so cool just to be like, 
not only do you get to listen to, because I'm sure listening to music just in general was difficult, if not impossible. And now on top of that, you're getting these exclusive recordings that probably no one else is ever going to hear unless you smuggle them home. <laughs> and that's we'll just- We'll get to later. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that later because they did. But that's just so, that's so cool to me. I, I, what an interesting program to come up with. And it's just hats off to them for, for taking advantage of it. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was, uh, like you just said, wasn't for the public. Right. Most people mm. were not hearing this music. It was all, um, you know, just for those GIs. And that's mm -hmm. kind of amazing. And yeah, ha but the best way to sell it is like, it's exclusive. <laughs> Only you can hear it. <laughs> wonder if they had um, people sign up in the military after hearing that. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? I get a... <laughs> I get to listen to all this new music? Sign me up. <laughs> Good read recruiting technique yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. get that certain group of people that really want that music uh but yeah fantastic uh and we're just you know skimming the surface right now uh we're going to get back into dennis's interview uh where he's going to talk a little bit more uh about the v-disc obviously but um talk a little bit more about what dan slightly mentioned which was intros on the v-disc and these were um, musicians that would record little intros and you, and, uh, Dennis will talk about this, but just that it was the first time you really got to like, kind of see their personalities a little bit, because otherwise they're just these, um, you know, two dimensional musicians that you maybe see a photo of, and then you hear the music and that's it. So just kind of talking a little bit about, uh, about what that did. And then also, uh, some of the other genres of music and, um, kind of opening up, that uh, opportunity for these GIs to hear different types of music that they maybe wouldn't have heard before. So uh, let's get back into Dennis Sprague's interview. On Miller's first VDIS session, we have the outtake of his of his introduction, and I guess I can say it now because he's he, you know because he he, he he blows because you know you have outtakes where they blow the introduction, and he goes, "This is Captain Glenn Miller and the Army Air Forces Orchestra, and we're sending these VDIS to." Uh, armed forces all over the world, something like that. And in the middle of it, he says, he stops and pauses and he goes, but, but he stumbles over his words and goes, oh, Jesus Christ. And, you know, and it's, we have this now memorialized of him swearing. <laughs> it's kind of funny, you know? So, you know, it's just like my favorite, one of my all-time favorite music stories is, and you, you may have heard it before, um, we have the recording, it, it, it exists on the NBC rehearsals where Toscanini had a gold watch that he'd been given by somebody out of, you know, for something he'd done some great deed there, some musical achievement. And, you know, Toscanini, if you listen to the rehearsals of the NBC orchestra, Toscanini's always screaming at everybody. <laughs> In one of the rehearsals, he takes the watch, the gold watch out of his pocket and he throws it on the floor and he's stomping on it. And you can hear Toscanini screaming at the orchestra and you can hear this, this, this watch going crunch, 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 crunch. <laughs> it's one of my all-time favorites. And there's other ones like, uh, for some reason, I don't know why Columbia Satan, but a lot of Benny Goodman's recording sessions from like 41 and 42, the fourth, fifth, and sixth take of different songs are, are, are retained and all the flubs. And so like Benny will be in the middle of a solo and it'll stop and it'll go, oh God, we got to start over again. I hate that, you know, stuff like that. It's I love the spontaneity that, gets recorded on these things so the introductions are great like you say because you've got everybody did an introduction on their v-disc you know and some are longer than others you know and some of the guys got a little carried away but you know it's the way it is yeah oh yeah that's awesome uh, yeah because that's the first time you could hear some of their voices which i think is really neat i know it humanizes them unless you have radio broadcasts where like you know like a lot of the band leaders, you know, it's funny today because it's politically incorrect, but the tobacco companies were the biggest sponsors of musicians in that era. I mean, Miller was Chesterfield. Then Harry James succeeded Miller. Actually, Miller succeeded Paul Whiteman. Then it was Harry James. Then there was Johnny Mercer's Music Shop. Then Perry Como. And, you know, on and on. And on. Frank Sinatra was old gold and lucky strike, you know. I mean. The, the 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 bands and the singers had sponsors and the sponsors were tobacco companies but a lot of the bands remember many bands there were there were dozens of popular bands that had best-selling records and hundreds of bands that performed all over the country and not all of them 
or had radio broadcasts where we can hear the voices of the band leaders. They, you don't really, you can hear them pl- if they, if they had an instrument, you could hear them you, and you can hear them on radio remotes where, you know, the surviving sustaining broad late night broadcasts that were commercial free. You know, we have a lot of the NBC, CBS and mutual broadcasts where we do hear the band leaders talking, but you're right. Normally people did not hear the voice of the band leader on the, on the record at all. Unless it was Kay Kaiser singing the introduction to his, you know, he would, or Sammy Kay would introduce it. He would, Sammy Kay would introduce the songs on the records. If you listen to the old records and it's like, it's kind of corny, but he did that. Whereas, you know, Harry, Harry James didn't have to introduce himself. His trumpet introduced himself. So one thing about Miller that's interesting, Miller was a very good trombone player and always in demand as a jazz musician. But he and like Duke Ellington are not known as soloists. They're known as arrangers and composers. Whereas like Tommy Dorsey, trombone, Jimmy Dorsey, sax, Harry, trumpet, Benny, clarinet, Artie Shaw, clarinet. You know, they were all, Artie Shaw was, a, was an arranger and a composer and a very good one. But we know Artie Shaw for his clarinet, even though Artie probably doesn't want us to know him for his clarinet. He wants us to know him for his brain. Artie kind of rebelled, as you know. So, yes. you know. Too funny. Dennis, you know, another aspect of the V-Discs that I wonder if you could comment on that I've always been enamored with is the fact that, as you said, there was a musician strike going on. Uh, Labels didn't have to uh, adhere to contracts. And so as a result, some of those V-Discs had people on them, uh, groups of musicians that wouldn't ordinarily have played together. That is correct. You will see that you'll have parents like vocal groups with bands that you're right they would not normally be together or what janik would do and the producers would do would be you get out of free i'm just the v disc 455 for example well one side may be tommy dorsey and the other side's harry james there's a lot of mixes of bands where one band's on one side one band's on the other and sometimes two bands are on the same side and there's four bands on a v disc so they were really intelligent with the way they mixed and mixed matched the content now in some cases when you look at some of the v-discs and see which bands they paired with each other you kind of scratch your head because you're saying why is um lionel hampton on the same v-disc with k kaiser you know that's kind of but you know so that didn't make sense but there was a few of those that are that are odd but you're right it 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 offered and it opened up a lot of things and i think the fact the musicians weren't getting royalties for those for the v-discs really made the thing possible because it opened it up for, as you say, creativity. Well, I always tell people like Armed Forces Radio is a good example. If you listen to art recordings of Armed Forces Radio Service programs made in Hollywood in 1944-45 timeframe, you're going to hear a lot of language on those shows that would the censors would never allow for the domestic radio audience. <laughs> and you're going to hear some really funny stuff, particularly on like if it's a command performance or a a mail call or something like that and comedians are on these shows they're suddenly letting loose like bob hope on a lot of these shows you can see why he was popular with in with personal appearances with service personnel because most of his stuff most of his monologues were totally off color but he he didn't he couldn't do that on his nbc you know weekly program but he could do it on armed forces radio (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you had mentioned that the v-discs also covered different genres of music are you familiar with uh because i am not the um the country artists that appeared on v-discs uh the most notorious v-disc i think the most notorious v-disc of all time is spade cooley and the song is called harry carey another one um Smoke on the Water, um, uh, Red Foley, that's on V-Disc. That was actually popular on V-Disc before it got released. Because remember, V-Disc had some stuff out before the records were released because of the recording strike and to the domestic audience. So there's a lot of that. Um, Pistol Pack and Mama, with um, that came out on V-Disc first. So there's a lot of things that were on V-Disc before they were on records in the state. So yeah, the country, the country stuff, if you look down the list of the roster of artists on the, the V-Disc and country Western artists, it's pretty representative 
of who was performing and recording at the time. A lot of Bob Wills, which you would expect, because Wills was very popular. Um, but yeah, Red Foley. But Spade Cooley actually was more popular than you than people remember because he ended up having a tragic end in the 50s. So they don't remember that at this time he was challenging um, um, uh, Wills in the Western swing genre. It, I think what you see is, is that what they called, remember, they didn't call it country Western. They called it hillbilly. <laughs> if you see the Venus, you'll see it'll have the genre on it. It'll say jazz or it'll say pop. And some will say hillbilly. <laughs> they don't say country. They say hillbilly. <laughs> well, they do. I mean, it's it's kind of funny. And But, but with Bob Wills, it'll say Western swing. It does say Western Swing. It doesn't say Hillbilly on the labels. But with Red Foley, it's definitely Hillbilly. <laughs> People like that. All right. That was Dennis Sprague and a great, great overview of the V-Disc program, which is our focus today on the Music History Project. And um, just a, a, a really another shout out to uh, Captain Robert Vincent, who really came up with this concept. He oversaw the whole program. He did work with another gentleman that we were lucky enough to interview some years ago, and that was George T. Simon, uh, who was really acted as the producer of these recordings in New York. Uh, he later uh, wrote basically the definitive book about the big band era, since he knew all those guys. Uh, and he was also a journalist for many magazines, including Metronome and uh, Billboard. Nice, nice guy. Um, another shout out to um, to uh, uh, John Tumpak, who really kind of helped us. He's another music historian that uh, connected us with Dennis. So thank you so much, John, for your ongoing support. And then uh, Dennis, you know, he, he mentioned those introductions on these recordings that were done by the performers. Oftentimes your first uh, and maybe even only chance to hear their voice. Um, one of my favorites was uh, a trumpet player uh, named Chris Griffin. And uh, Chris later uh, became uh, pretty well known uh, in the Ed Sullivan show as a uh, the musical director and also served in that orchestra. Um, his his quote, I have it written down, so it's not that long, but uh, uh, I wanted to say it exactly how he says it. He says, hiya, fellas. <laughs> Chris Griffin here, V-discin for you once again. Sure hope you gents enjoy the show. I love that. Uh, that that warmth, you know, that's the that's the kind of compelling part that you don't hear. I mean, how often do we have recordings now that have an introduction by the artist? Um, that's and there's many of them. Not everybody had an introduction. Another guy who did a lot of introductions uh, was Glenn Miller. Uh, so we're very fortunate to hear him and get a, a inside of his personality as well. Uh, the next guy we're going to hear uh, from is really one of my heroes. I sort of grew up reading his articles. He's a uh, music historian, a, a jazz expert, a, a journalist uh, for the Syncopated, Syncopated Times, which is a, uh, a, a newspaper type publication that still uh, is hard copy for some of us that remember the good old days of <laughs> opening up a newspaper. Uh, the Syncopated Times is a, a great read, and uh, Lou Shaw has a uh, article in almost every month, even now into his 90s. He still contributes greatly to all of our knowledge. So I'm very happy that we had the chance to talk to him. Yeah, uh, yeah. and so we captured this interview uh, earlier this year in February, and I just personally have to give a shout out to his IT guy um, yes. at his retirement <laughs> home because uh, these Zoom calls are not always the easiest to, to do. But his IT guy came in and made sure everything was set up and uh, we couldn't have done it without him. So That's just a true. quick shout out to him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's get into this really interesting uh, interview with Lou, uh, who actually has firsthand experience with the V-Disc uh, because he was in the military during World War II and remembers listening to them. Uh, so here is Lou Shaw. I can remember because I was on an LST, I was the navigator of an LST, and we were going from Pearl Harbor to Okinawa, and then we, we went to a bunch of other places like Saipan, and 
ended up going over to the Philippines. But when we were at sea, you know, they would play these V-discs on the uh, PA system. And uh, that was where we heard their music. So, I mean, that, that sort of, you know, kept it going. And that's really basically the story of, of, the, of V-discs. So that's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. And uh, uh, that, that tells you what, what happened basically. And uh, um, so the final shipments were, were uh, sent out in May of 1949. And from the time they started in 43 to 49, there were 912 inch of these 78 uh, D discs, which involved 2,700 songs, according to the research that I did and so forth. Lou, that's really compelling. And thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I love the fact that you remember hearing V discs. I, I think that's fantastic. Uh, one of the things that I always thought was compelling about those discs, I mean, obviously they were designed to help booster the morale of uh, the servicemen and women, um, which I think it did. Um, but that also because of the strike, it brought musicians together that were maybe on different labels or would never ordinarily actually perform together. And so there was some really great recordings uh, that were done. And I think, in more recent years, it has. There's been some bootlegs made on uh, to CDs and on vinyl of some of those original recordings. So there are some of them still around, which I think is really neat. Yes, it wasn't always just the big bands. And what happens is that normally the band leader would 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 give a brief introduction. In other words, Glenn Miller would say, "Hey, the, we're, we're happy to do this for all you." Yeah, service people, et cetera, and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, then they'd, they'd play, uh, you know, a dozen tunes, and that was that was their their particular V-disc and so forth. And sometimes they would, you know, as you say, get get some all-stars together, you know, and some of the greats back then, like Art Tatum and Wild Bill Davidson and people like that, you know, and they would have great jam sessions. So you you got a lot of different stuff. And I, I think and then they, they was a special group for the African-American sailors and soldiers, you know, and it was bobbing. It's a fellow by the name of, uh, they called him the Jubilee Series. And it was a guy by the name of Ernie Bubbles Whitman, W-H-I-T-M-A-N. And uh, so they really, they, they did a great job. And it, it was it was terrific because, you know, uh, being on an LST, uh, we made about six knots an hour. So it took a long time to go from Pearl Harbor to wherever we were going. And so you spent a lot of time out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with not an awful lot to do and so forth. And so having these records, you know, hearing the music and, and a little sense of home and, you know, you remember all the great, tunes like, you know, play, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition and don't sit under the apple tree and with anybody else but me and so forth. And so it was terrific from that point of view. So we, we, we sure appreciated it. And it was, a, it was a great deal. And I thought, you know, this is a pretty fast, pretty interesting story about how it all came about and how that you know that they they there are there are some masters. I think the Library of Congress has a master set somewhere, but it's they're not, they're not supposed to. You know, the average person is not supposed to have them anymore. So once again, that was Lou Shaw. Big thanks to him for sitting down with us virtually, and again, thank you for to his IT guy for making him look very <laughs> nice in that shot. Always a good thing to see. Um, just wanted to say really quickly that uh, we do have a tag on the NAM website. Our tags is how you can sort through all of our thousands of interviews. And we have a tag for the V-Disc and it has pretty much everyone that you are hearing from today. Um, but it, we always like to grow those tags even more. So if you have any more information about the V-Disc program or know anyone who would be willing to sit down with us and talk about it, you can always shoot us an email to library at nam.org and we will get in touch with you because we always like interviewing new people, making new friends. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. Absolutely. 
Well, as we uh, start winding down, we have one more segment of some interviews. Um, I think it's uh, time to talk just a little bit about the the end of the program of the V discs. You know, in all, they sent out about eight million records, which is wow. an amazing amount for a short period of time, 1943 to 49. And in 1949, um, it really was the task of uh, the military to discard and destroy uh, all the records that were left all over uh, for, for foreign countries. Um, there were no royalties, there were no contracts. And so as a result, these artists didn't want to lose money on their next projects by having a saturation of 8 million records going around that uh, they didn't have to, um, that people didn't have to pay for one, but two, that they didn't get any residuals from. It was meant only for the, the military. And as a result, the FBI even got involved, arrested some servicemen who took oh. some uh, records home. Um, there was some jail time in California for a record company that uh, that had, I think, something like 3,000 records uh, that they were planning to distribute. Um, so the fact that I'm holding one is a little scary right wow. now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was determined at some point that these were historical documents. And as a result, slowly, when I was a kid, about uh, 11 or 12, I remember going to Rod's Rare Records in San Carlos, one of my favorite hangouts, and seeing bootlegs that had V-Disc recordings. And that was the first time that I heard them. Um, and slowly, those um, became uh, more and more commercially available. Um, and you can get many of them. I mean, there are some that were completely destroyed and that was it. So to jump ahead, when I was about 15 years old, uh, I had a radio show in the San Francisco Bay Area, and my partner was Jerry Jacobs, uh, who served during World War II and who um, experienced the joy of playing music from home thanks to the V-Discs. Uh, I remember him specifically uh, telling me about hearing Duke Ellington um, and how wonderful that was for him while he was fighting uh, in, in Germany um, just a few weeks before uh, discovering a small concentration camp that was not currently on the map. No one knew about it. They discovered it. Um, and can you imagine that? And he said that night he had something to hum to distract himself from what they had seen, thanks to that Duke Ellington record. Um, so when Jerry told me that, and it was coming up uh, 1985, the 40th anniversary of the victory over uh, Europe, we had this great idea of having a V-Disc radio broadcast. And so in our regular show, um, we asked anybody out there listening who might have some records that they were able to take home from uh, the war, or if they knew uh, if they had any of the bootlegs, we were going to go ahead and sort of uh, pretend that we had rights to play them and, um, <laughs> and did the whole show for V-Disc. And, and a couple of soldiers came by. I remember there was one specific guy, can't remember his name, but um, he had a whole duffel bag that he took home and was able to get away with. Nobody searched it, apparently. Um, and it was it was exactly the way he packed it. He never took him out of the bag in 40 years. Can you imagine that? And they were perfect. They were all stacked. And this was one of them. Uh, this is Glenn Miller. I love the name of this because it really helps you identify the era of World War II. It's called Peggy the Pinup Girl. Isn't that great? Uh, by Glenn Miller. And on the back is My Melancholy Baby by Sam Donahue and the uh, Navy Dance Band. Um, so, um, so these guys came forward, uh, provided us with content for this program that was originally supposed to be an hour, and it wound up being three and a half hours. Um, and it was a great education in all that we uh, have been talking about today. And I'm saying this because we're so lucky now that um, the internet now has many of these recordings for us to listen to. And I really urge you to seek some of these out. They are available 
and uh, especially the intros are very compelling and the people that got to play together that had no other chances of doing that as we um listen to that era we can i think appreciate uh the soldiers that uh that defended our country um and and realizing how much music really meant to them during that time um so with that i'm i'm really grateful that we have this opportunity to share so one of the guys that um uh, was on a v disc it was a good friend of mine the late great specs powell um and i wish i had three hours to talk about how awesome he was um but he was on that record uh roy meets horn that i told you about with uh, roy eldridge on the trumpet um and and specs is um interview we only just briefly talked about it but it is so cute i mean specs was such a great guy i absolutely love this segment i'm not going to give any more of it away it's very short but um it it's indicative of how um endearing specs is and, and the other uh, person we're going to close out our show uh, was actually a volunteer at the Museum of Making Music for many years before her passing, Rabina Miller. We miss her dearly. She actually had a record store in England uh, right after World War II, and uh, she has a fun little story about that, uh, about V-Discs as well. So uh, we're going to be hearing now from Spex and Rabina uh, right here on the Music History Project. I got to ask you, though, backing up a little bit, to red there was a part um that you played in that swing session that he had wasn't dizzy and um a bunch of those cats were you a part of that um session was it a big band yeah yeah and was it was it a v-disc i think it was a v-disc during i think 44 i want to okay. say okay was that. was uh that was during this was mildred bailey there yes okay then i made it yeah, yeah. okay and and uh that would have been Teddy Wilson on piano, Charlie Shavers, uh, Al Hall. Uh, that was a swinging disc. Was, yes, yes. <laughs> we have fun and that was that. during the strike, right? Yes, that's another thing, too, that, that uh, a lot of us at that time didn't get a chance to record. Because the strike was on for two years. However, it was also during the war. And so... Uh, we, we made a lot of V-discs for the armed forces with some high-powered musicians, some great arrangements and so forth. During World War II, I think I told you, Dan, that I sang with a couple of big bands in London and all for the troops and just off and on sang with small groups and big groups and, and enjoyed it. Never followed it as a career, though. Um, don't know why, just didn't, yet I love to sing. And then at retirement, then I just sang with other groups on a volunteer basis. And, and that was good too. And I've always loved to sing and I've always loved to listen to any kind of music. And actually, people are quite surprised when they find that I love country western, <laughs> which is a far cry from the other. But I discovered that in this country. And love it. Yeah, there's not much country and western to speak of in, in <laughs> the, the UK. Well, there wasn't when I was a kid anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think they call it country and western. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't they? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, now, uh, tell me, when you, when you were a kid, um, it was the big bands and so on. Was it, in your um, remembrances and knowledge, similar to the big bands that were going on in, in the U.S. as far as popularity and so on? Yes. Uh, all the re We've got the V-discs, oh, v v yeah. And, um, of course, we all knew Ben, uh, Glenn Miller and uh, Benny Goodman and all the big bands. And I don't know whether the English big bands copied them. I don't know. I was 15, yeah. so I don't really know how it came about. All I know was, yeah, there were big bands in England also. Uh, Ted Heath. Um, who was the fellow that came out here that wrote and played music for the Muppets? Uh, 
He played with yeah. Ted Heath, and I just don't recall his name. It wasn't Joseph Raposo, was it? No, but I think his name, last name began with a P. But I just don't remember. Well, there are so many good ones, yeah, too. Yeah, but he, 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 his music was, you know, it, I was quite surprised when I saw his name appear oh, yeah. on the credits for the Muppet, Muppets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, a lot of influential bands during that time. But tell me about... Um, how did you get into singing with the bands? How did that come about? This is actually, I, I, think, <laughs> I think I copied a, a, a movie. My friend and I were walking home from the movie show. And we could, and this is true, we heard a big band playing. We followed it. We went in the back door and I was all oh, about 16 at the time. And they were, and they didn't have a vocalist. We stood at the back, there was nobody dancing, they were rehearsing. We stood at the back of the hall and I went up and said, hey, you guys need a vocalist? And he said, why, you want to try out? And I said, oh, sure. Got up on the stage and saying, I'll be with you in Apple. He handed me the dots and said, that's what we called them in those days. And he said, and it was, I'll be with you in Apple Blossom time. So that was my first debut. <laughs> Oh, Got the job. Cool. <laughs> what did your parents think of that? Well, it was a whole different time and a different era. At 15 and 16, because of the war, we were all grown up. So we pretty, and I'd had a, I had a full-time job, you know, 40-hour-a-week job. We weren't kids in those days. That's very and, and that went on until... Um, came to the States, and then we were so busy trying to make ends meet that the, the music took a back seat. It really did. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you sang with several bands. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And, and I believe I told you that we opened a music store when my uh, husband came out of the RAF. We opened a music store, and that was called The Swing Shop, and that was in Mitcham, London. And it was the only shop of its kind in the whole of London. Jack Parnell. That was the drama that went with the, right? Yep, that's right. Okay. He did play drums, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was the one that did the right. yeah, Muppets. And uh, they, all those boys used to come in, because we were all kids together, you know, all about the same age. And we, uh, they used to come into the music shop, remember? Uh, I think I told you, and uh, get their instruments repaired. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you didn't um, have a repair shop. No, we didn't. No, we no, had the little, you want that little story? Yeah, we, we had a little room upstairs. And it was a tiny shop because we were just a couple of kids starting out, you know, and we used to sell all these V-discs and black market. This isn't for the FBI, is it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I'd hate to be deported at this age. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, um, they would bring their instruments in and we'd say, Oh, okay, we, we'll handle it. And, and my husband would run them up the stairs, run the instrument up the stairs and mumble, pretend there was talking. He'd come down and say, they'll have it ready for you in a week. There were, there was nobody upstairs at all, but him talking to himself. And then we would farm out the instruments. <laughs> Any way to make a buck, you know? But we were very popular, as I said, because we were the only store of its kind. Now, did you have <laughs> instruments on sale as well or mostly? Oh, yes, yes. We had a little, sh uh, it was a very small store, and my dad, on a, uh, on a sat, there's another little amusing story that goes along with this, would come down on a Saturday because uh, we used to get all these black market records and sell them. And all the guys were coming out of the service, you understand, with a lot of money in their pockets, okay? And everybody was crazy about the American big bands. So we would sell these records on uh, and Saturday morning. It would be big, big people, big, a lot of people coming. And we'd, uh, my dad would let a few people in and then a few people out. And then the money that we took in the till, my dad would put in his pocket. And no, 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 <laughs> to take to the bank later. <laughs> okay. And then on a Sunday, we'd repeat the process. But there was a Catholic church opposite. And the minute that the Catholic church would let out, we'd crank up the jazz. 
and here would come all the young people over to the store. So we'd make a killing on a Sunday morning too, and the money that we made in that little store brought us to the States. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's amazing. What a neat story. Mm -hmm. Well, guys, this was a fantastic episode. I think I say that almost every time. But this one was really <laughs> great. Uh, it's just... I love learning about this and not knowing about it beforehand and then really getting into it. And now I just want to do all this more research on it. And it's kind of one of those like fun, obscure facts that you can share with people that I think almost anybody would be interested in hearing about of, Hey, did you ever know there was this whole program during world war two? <laughs> <laughs> and um, those, I mean, I just, I love this episode and I think, you know, hearing these stories and especially getting some firsthand stories of um, what these records meant to uh, soldiers is such a great, great opportunity for us to have and to share with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And the shout out to all those folks who made this episode possible. Um, and, you know, Ashley, you just, you know, you reminded me that uh, during that radio broadcast on the 40th anniversary of World War II that I was able to do with my friend Jerry Jacobs, uh, we got all kinds of phone calls from soldiers who remembered hearing those records and how meaningful it was. And every time I listen to one of these V-Discs, I think about that. I think about it's not just the recordings, it's the impact that those recordings had. And we mm -hmm. can't always know what an impact is. I mean, you know, we, we have our favorite artists and we know what they those songs mean to us, which is why we all love music. Um, but having a particular program like this um, and, and knowing that some of those V discs were heard by soldiers that didn't come home, you know, maybe mm -hmm. this is the last songs that they heard. I think about that because that is another reason why we shouldn't forget about all of that. You know, it was a big impact on a lot of lives and how wonderful it is that we can share that with you. And, you know, my recommendation, uh, I, I mentioned Need Lux Lewis before, one of the uh, the great jazz pianists and, and really a blues influencer as well. He recorded a thing called the V-Disc Stomp. So if you want to stomp around, check that out. I know it's on YouTube. Uh, so uh, that's my recommendation. Um, and thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in and making it possible for us to share this story with you. Yeah, we were talking about this a little bit before we were recording, but just the the like distributing all of like 8 million records, like doing that <laughs> like commercially is not the easiest thing to do, <laughs> but being able to do that and bring music to all these soldiers, like during a war, dur during <laughs> a world war, like, yeah. yeah, just insane. And like the power of it is crazy. Like you wouldn't really think like on the surface, like, oh yeah, you know, they can listen to some records and like hang out. And, but it, it's so much more than that. You know, you get, you get you come back home basically you get a little slice of home and that's mm -hmm. that's it's just so great that this program existed and thank you everyone for listening thank you for learning about the v-disc with us today um if you are on nam.org thank you for watching the video version of this podcast we will be back in two weeks with a brand new episode and until then bye-bye bye-bye bye, -bye. bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.